a very small number of people can shape the course of this race. So if Palmer Luckey decides that he's very pro-Trump and drops $25 million into a race or a state, that can really change things pretty dramatically. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, February 15th. Today, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about the invisible 2024 Republican primary and the behind-the-scenes competition for big donors. Will anti-Trump money line up behind Ron DeSantis, or will Republican donors be divided just like they were back in the 2016 primary? Teddy has the inside scoop. And later, Eric Gardner stops by to discuss the revolution in college sports after the Supreme Court opened the door to paying student-athletes. Is this the end of the NCAA? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Hope your Valentine's Day was absolutely delightful and you didn't blow too much money at a restaurant with a stupid curated overpriced menu. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer. Speaking of money and spending, I want to talk to you, Teddy, about Ron DeSantis and if he runs for president, how he's going to raise money, where that money might come from. But just to step back for a second, the Republican Party in the Trump era and specifically Donald Trump his success was powered by mostly small donors, like people just giving and giving and giving a few bucks here and there online. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene will say something totally provocative. It'll be controversial. She'll send out a fundraising email saying, I'm under attack from the left. Can you give $5 right now? That's really been how Republicans, the big name ones at least, have been raising money. The traditional kind of country club, GOP, big donor set, went along with Trump and the RNC and all of that in recent years. But it does feel like that's the group that Ron DeSantis, if he runs, is going to have to tap into. So more traditional big donors. Do you agree with me that, that, that DeSantis is going to have to really go after big checks and big money? I'm not saying he can't raise small dollars because he's certainly been a really talented fundraiser in Florida. But is he already courting the big donor set in a way that kind of Trump never did? So from the outset, uh, DeSantis has tens of millions of dollars, I believe, that is left over from his gubernatorial race. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's money that is in a state level campaign account, but is probably going to be able to transfer it to this federal super PAC. Um, So he's going to start out with tens of millions of dollars right off the bat. And yes, DeSantis is going to be hitting the, the high dollar hustings in a way that we haven't really seen since 2016, where, you know, Jeb Bush famously assembled the shock and awe campaign when he wasn't even a declared candidate, you know, in, in 2015, you know, everyone was donating to, to Ready to Rise, I believe it was called. 
Actually, Teddy, it was called Right to Rise. That was the pack. Right, right to, to Rise. Rise. Okay, whatever. So DeSantis, you know, it's been reported uh, ever since your your scoop, Peter, last week. Um, you know, DeSantis is, is going to have a, kind of a donor cultivation event at the end of the month in Florida. And, and you know, these, these are donors who are ready to be cultivated. You know, the Ken Griffins and Steve Schwartzmans of the world. Are, are eager to turn the page from Trump. They've said that publicly, which is sort of extraordinary that, you know, they're they're not necessarily getting saying exactly who they're going to be supporting yet, but they are saying out loud for the record that they are, you know, not eager to see the, you know, leader of the Republican Party continue to be Trump. You know, the, the Koch network, which uh, in 2016 uh, never really mobilized in force against Trump during the primary was sort of one of the probably the mistakes retrospectively about that that phase when there wasn't really Republican consolidation against Trump, you know, the Kochs have basically said that they are going to be reengaging in politics um, after taking kind of uh, a sabbatical over the last half decade. And they're going to try to beat Trump, you know, the club for growth, which had a very friendly relationship with Trump during his presidency. They've also recently come out and said that they're going to be spending money, presumably for DeSantis. And so we're seeing sort of a, a redux of 2016, but maybe in a more coordinated fashion, Hopefully, right, where um, you would have Republican donors who want Trump to lose consolidate in theory. But that was, of course, what didn't happen in 16 when, you know, John Kasich was in the race, Marco Rubio was in the race, Ted Cruz was in the race. And there were lots of donors, you know, to give people PTSD who thought Trump isn't going to last past New Hampshire. I can Mm -hmm. support, you know, my chosen flavor of anti-Trump candidate. And, you know, the hope from donors is that, you know, they don't make the same mistake twice. And that's why I think DeSantis is advantaged by the fact that if you look at polls right now, this does kind of look like a two-person race. And maybe there will be donor consolidation in a way that there was not in 2015, 2016, because A, you have the lived experience of having screwed up eight years ago when, you know, everyone was spending money on the John Kasich super PAC. Meanwhile, Trump was, you know, running away with the nomination. And the fact that, like, if this was, you know, Trump 45 and then DeSantis 5, Pompeo 5, Pence 5, mm-hmm. Tim Scott 5, you might have everyone still believing that their anti-Trump candidate was the best. So I do think that there's likelier to be consolidation around DeSantis earlier if the Ducks can get aligned right now. And that's why I think this is actually a very important part of the Republican primary, even though you know it hasn't officially launched and DeSantis hasn't said he's running yet. Like the shadow primary element is is very big with with donors specifically. And I think mm-hmm. if DeSantis you know can argue and you know his super PAC aides that that Peter you've reported are putting together this group, if they can argue like this is the anti-Trump group, like don't waste your time with the Mike Pompeo flirtation. Um, if you want to beat Trump, this is the group. I think that's mm-hmm. a pretty powerful message when it is backed up by polling that shows this to be a two-person race. But you mentioned Pompeo, Mickey Haley, Tim Scott. There's some reporting out. You did some last week. These are all people who have traditional relationships with donors. Nikki Haley from her RGA days. Mike Pompeo has been making phone calls. Tim Scott is really liked by donors. It doesn't feel like, in other words, all of the quote-unquote big check Republican donor crowd is already just aligning with Ron DeSantis or his nascent super PAC that's being built. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like where... Where do these other players who might end up with 1% of the vote in the end, but like where do where do their financial supporters come into all this? So uh, this is a very obvious point, but like a very small percentage of Republican donors can have a huge impact on the aggregate spend in a race. So when we're talking about like the donors, that's like a huge group of people. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but frankly, like I reported on Larry Ellison, you know, who's one of the uh, the Oracle chairman and is you know one of the richest people in the world. He is very much pushing Tim Scott for president. He's put 30, 40 million bucks into Scott's super PAC already nominally or ostensibly for the midterms in 2022. But like what Larry Ellison thinks matters more than like 100 other people who are at some Ron DeSantis donor event, you know, in, in Florida later this month. So ultimately, this is obviously a very decentralized group of people. And I think the risk to the consolidation uh, scenario I was painting a moment ago is if like, sure, maybe 98% of donors, right, will consolidate around Ron DeSantis. But if there's a Adelson figure during like, for instance, the Gingrich run in 2012, where like Foster Freeze was the guy for Rick Santorum back in 2012, like he could single-handedly pay for Rick Santorum's super PAC and he could ride it as long as he wanted. One or two people can make this dream into a nightmare, and and that would be the the, the scenario for Republican elites and for you know the the shadow primary. That would be disrupted by if most or ninety eight or ninety nine percent of donors are behind DeSantis and they say that this is the guy who you know is going to take down Trump, but you only have, you have one or two or three other donors who back you know someone who's obsessed with Mike Pompeo and someone who's obsessed with Nikki Haley. Then suddenly you do have a more splintered group because. Uh, from a candidate's perspective, you know, they want to be president of the United States. Pretty rare that you see a candidate drop out if the money remains there, right? So if you're Nikki Haley and you have, you know, some Wall Street donor who who loves you um, and you have is willing to fund your advertising past New Hampshire, past South Carolina, suddenly, like, you could end up in a scenario that's exactly similar to 2016, where Trump wins with 40% of the vote and, you know, DeSantis and Haley stick around for as long as possible because of ego, because a donor or two tells them to stick around in the race. So that's why when I talk about donor consolidation and sort of the anti-Trump shadow primary, we're talking about thousands of people, but we're really only also talking about like a dozen people. Yeah. And, and that's, there's like the, the grass tops and there's the tippy, tippy, tippy tops. And, and those people have enormous power because if they're not all singing from the same songbook, you could end up in a scenario that's exactly like 2016. So um, the anti-Trump forces need to get not just like the 0.1% on the same page, you need to get the 0.001% on the same page, because otherwise it could very well be chaos. Teddy, there is one 0.0001% top tier money guy uh, who does like Donald Trump, and that's Palmer Lucky, who's the founder sure. of Oculus. He was fired by Facebook. Very Trumpy guy. Is Palmer going to bail on Trump and go to DeSantis. It seems like there's like division in Silicon Valley around this stuff. I mean, you also wrote last week that Larry Ellison is telling his friends that he wants Tim Scott to run and he would right. theoretically support Tim Scott. So is, is Palmer lucky going to bail on Trump and go on the DeSantis train? So there sort of is this group of right wingers in tech who are, are part of the teal orbit who mm-hmm. are genuine Trumpers, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that these are the in, in Wall Street, you don't see as much of this, maybe outside of a few people people from real estate who just have Trump connections. Uh-huh. Um, like in, to some extent, I feel like there is a more right wing, not necessarily conservative, but just, you know, sort of an own the libs group of donors who are pro chaos. And, you know, Peter Thiel, I report, is is unlikely to eventually come out for DeSantis. Like he, I think, is going to be on the Trump train or supporting nobody. And Palmer, who is... I don't want to say he's a Teal disciple. It's a little bit too far. But he is 
allied with kind of teal forces, you know, sort of part of the broad or teal orbit, I would say. His brother-in-law is, is Matt Gates, and he's, he's married to uh, <laughs> Matt Gates's sister. He, he is a part of sort of the right wing in Silicon Valley. And he's actually going to be an interesting person, I think, to watch on this because he is allied with the Trump orbit. You know, he hosted Trump for a fundraiser. I think it was actually one of Trump's last fundraisers, October, like late October 2020. Mm-hmm. When Trump went there, he had like no money left. And it was like a sign that he needed some last oh, minute yeah. infusion. And, and Palmer hosted it. But <laughs> but ultimately, Palmer is someone who I think is has some DeSantis ties. He cut DeSantis a check at some point. So he's he, I think, is actually a pretty good bellwether for for this kind of more right wing faction, mm-hmm. because most Silicon Valley Republicans are moderates. And as that's true of most kind of conservative donors or moderates. But then there is kind of this right-wing backlash to the wokes of the tech industry and Palmer and Peter Thiel and to some extent Elon sort of typify that. So yeah, exactly. There, there's going to be like the mainstream business donor consolidation, which I think we know how that's going to play out. But I'm also definitely interested in the fringe because as I mentioned, like a very small number of people can shape the course of this race. So if Palmer Lucky decides that he's very pro-Trump and drops $25 million into a race or a state, that can really change things pretty dramatically. So we really got to focus on the real, 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 real tippy tops here. Teddy, thanks for all the insight. You bet. When we come back, Eric Gardner talks to Ben Landy about college athletes getting paid. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. Happy Wednesday, Eric. You too. So Eric, I wanted to have you on today because you had some pretty incredible reporting earlier this week on why 
college sports, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's a huge part of so many people's lives, is basically coming to an end as we know it, thanks to this Supreme Court ruling uh, two years ago that basically opened the door to colleges having to pay athletes, or at least not preventing them from getting paid. Just to take a step back here, what was sort of the basic arrangement for college athletes previously until the courts got involved? Well, basically, it was to work for free. It was to, uh, you know, participate in sports. And, you know, for the most part, that's not a problem. I think that most athletes don't have any expectation of being paid. But if you're a football player or a basketball player and you see that the NCAA is making billions, everyone's making billions, the people who are broadcasting, the colleges, the administrators, the coaches, the shoe companies, even the people who are selling concessions at the stadium, they're all making money, but you're not. And I think that led to, you know, a a lot of grievances and a lot of people wondering, why not me? Especially in football, where it's such a dangerous sport to play. I think that there was a movement that everyone should consider the, the athletes and maybe should consider giving them a piece of the pie. And moreover, I think that they were very upset about the restrictions that they couldn't be compensated, not just from the money that was being made directly, the sports and everything, but the restrictions that disallowed them from pursuing sponsorship deals and, and all that. Because, you know, in the NCAA's eyes, the whole amateur is rhythm thing was was very cherished and very revered and everything like that. But for, for these athletes, it didn't make sense. Yeah, one of the examples of the the weirdness of this legal gray area wild west that we have entered in college sports is this kid, Jaden Rashada. He's 19 years old, one of the top football recruits in the country. You know, he gets this $14 million deal to play for the University of Florida, where I guess, and the deal fell apart, but I guess the deal wasn't with the school. It's with one of these unaffiliated booster clubs that cut a deal with him for his name and image and likeness. How do those deals work? And, and, and why is it that college athletes are signing contracts like that and not getting paid yet directly from these schools. Yeah, so the Supreme Court came in and they said, basically, the NCA's restrictions on education-related benefits couldn't withstand scrutiny. They didn't address pay, per se, but the NCA saw that and they, they saw the handwriting on the wall and they decided, okay, we're going to need to get out in front of this and, and make some changes um, so that we have a you know an arguable position in court. And so they came out with these interim rules that allowed athletes to accept sponsorship deals so they could license their name, image, and likeness. Um, many states across the nation also you know, start passing laws to allow um, students to do this as well. So that's where we're at right now, this kind of like interim stage where these sponsorship deals are coming together. Um, it's before the colleges directly pay students, but after they're not allowed any compensation. So it's in this like middle area, this gray area where, where a lot of chaos Rains. I think you know two things really stood out about the Rashada incident. One was the absolutely staggering sum to consider that you know these athletes were getting paid nothing a few years ago, and now they're being paid fourteen million dollars is just astonishing. I mean, in such a short amount of time to see that. And second, the fact that you know the deal goes away and all of a sudden he's transferring shows people kind of a cynical side to this thing, which probably takes no one for surprise, but really goes to show the commercialism that that the NCAA has become. Um, It goes to show that, you know, there are some 
who are out for a buck. Not that I begrudge that, but yeah, I mean, that's what college sports at high levels, for, especially for football, has become. And that's what we should expect going forward. And we should see more of this. I think we're going to see changes. But, you know, this incident's really kind of tells everyone that, you know, the NCAA, as we once knew it, is totally gone. Yeah, we're obviously in a, in a weird, uncomfortable sort of middle stage between that old regime, which which I agree was, was totally unfair that some incredibly talented young people who are essentially athletes working for these schools generating huge amounts of income are not getting any kind of compensation themselves. And this other situation you have with Rashada, where there could be this $14 million deal on the side. And there aren't yet really rules or restrictions or guidelines on how those new systems will work. Eric, take me through some of these other big cases that are working their way through the pipeline and the courts right now, because it sounds like the current status quo is not stable and it's probably going to change pretty quickly. Sure. I think there are three things that in particular should be paid attention to. One is a case that right now is going to be heard by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals this week, Johnson versus the NCA, and it really examines whether student athletes are uh, employees under federal labor law. And if so, that means that they get minimum wage, they get overtime, there are probably other obligations that you have to do as an employer, such as you know clock hours and, and withhold taxes and all that. But it really goes to kind of the level of control that the schools exert over these students, as well as who's the primary beneficiary of this relationship. Is it the the student athletes because you know they get so much for, from participating in sports, the health benefits, the the camaraderie, or is it the schools who are making money? So you know the, the the district court judge said that this is something that should go to trial. The NCA is appealing that, and they're saying that this doesn't withhold any scrutiny, and we should just throw it out. The second thing is a case called House versus NCA. It's a class action. It's on a slower timeline, but it goes into the question of whether athletes, particularly in top sports, deserve some of the TV money. The real allegation here is that the NCA is violating antitrust law by restricting schools from sharing the spoils of their broadcast revenue uh, with athletes or with with the entities that would share it with athletes. So, um, you know, the, the question really is, can the NCA justify those restrictions? Um, if they can't justify the restrictions, then the judge comes in and, and says the restrictions can't withstand. And then the schools may have to compete with each other and they might compete each other by giving their athletes you know, a, a percentage of the pot. Finally, the third thing that I'd point out is stuff that's happening at the National Labor Relations Board where athletes are trying to unionize and the NLRB has to decide whether to recognize the union. If they recognize the union, then the unions are going to have some right to collectively bargain their working conditions. Um, they might be able to collectively bargain their wages. And so that's a big thing as well, because we can imagine where things are headed, where you know athletes start getting a more direct piece of the compensation pot, that this whole thing will start to be, you know, bargains between unions and, and, and schools, uh, this, similar to the, what happens in the professional level, where there's a salary cap that, that both sides negotiate, and then everything's kind of apportioned. So those are the, the three big things that, I've, that I'm watching in the next few years. Right. So there's multiple legal pathways right now toward what seems like an, an inevitable 
transformation of college sports that the Supreme Court, again, opened the door to. I mean, you, you mentioned in your reporting, Brett Kavanaugh's writing supporting this decision, which was unanimous. And, and he basically said, you know, of course, it's unfair that the colleges would make so much money from this and that the students wouldn't participate in, it, in any of it. It's really the only market like this in America where you could even imagine something like that. But Eric, what is the fear in terms of how all these changes could affect college sports as we know it? Because um, I, presumably there are a lot of colleges that just can't compete when this money spigot opens up, or you have smaller sports like wrestling or fencing that are just going to bleed money relative to the more popular revenue generating sports. Yeah, I think that, that there are a number of kind of internal tensions that are going on. One is the internal tensions between the big schools and the smaller schools. You know, I don't think anyone worries that a, a school like Alabama or Michigan will continue to have sports. But when you start talking about, you know, a school like Arizona State or, you know, so, some school in, you know, Oregon, will they be able to continue to afford their athletics? That's a, you know, a tougher question to answer. Then second of all, you you start looking within the schools at, at various different sports. Football and basketball, they have they are very expensive to do. They obviously take in a lot of revenue because of Title IX. Title IX is is the federal law that strives for gender equality and says basically that you have to uh, spend as much on female sports as, as male sports. So that means that these schools, they spend a lot of money on football and basketball so they're going to spend that same amount on on women's sports so if you're participating for a, a lesser men's sport say tennis or wrestling suddenly that it's it's really tough to really continue there and you know when you start talking about incorporating minimum wage into this or you know the schools have to start apportioning some of their budget to compensation and it just changes the entire economic equation and it's going to lead to you know a lot of tough questions about you know what stays and what goes does every you know school in the nation really need a wrestling program maybe not so you know maybe you know we see them go at 90 percent of the schools that we currently have that you know really could put the sport in a, in a really tough spot and then i think that there are going to be a lot of people very dissatisfied by all this you know they're not going to like the fact that these sports are being huddled in rich schools that they're shrinking that they're you know basically becoming more professional so I, it's going to roil a lot of people that's not to say that this shouldn't happen because there are lots of really good reasons why athletes should be paid but it's definitely going to be a shock to the system. And, um, you know, over the next few years, over the next decade, I think that there's going to be tremendous questions and tremendous pressure and tremendous public debate about about all the changes that we're seeing. We're really at the beginning stages here. Yeah, it's, it's totally fascinating. And Eric, like you wrote in your piece for Puck, which I encourage people to check out, um, this really does throw out the window the whole notion of amateurism in, in sports as sort of a college tradition, the idea of this weird semi-professional class of athletes who are still students, but, but obviously um, incredible athletes who deserve to be paid at the same time. But thanks for coming by. Like you said, one of those cases, the Johnson case, is in court uh, right now this week. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And uh, we'll have you back on the program to talk about it. Wonderful. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. 
If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.